We're in the book of Ruth. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, my own studies in Ruth. I, I always feel like I kind of cheat the church. And not that I'm, I am, but I study so much more than I can possibly put out in an hour. But I find myself just getting totally caught up in the story and totally caught up in what's going on with the people and how their interactions are going and all of that. And I pray that you're getting about that much of the blessing I'm getting because it's going to be enough <laughs> as the Lord leads. So uh, as we're looking here in the book of Ruth, uh, I, I want to go back. I want to recap briefly what's been going on in chapter one so far. We've got to remember that 10 years before the events that Ruth is experiencing now, uh, that the nation of Israel was in the time, the period of the judges. The period of the judges was from Joshua's death till Samuel, the prophet's death, Samuel being the last judge and also the prophet uh, as the kings came onto the scene in Israel. And and it was uh, seven cycles of decline and salvation. I went through that before. I'm not going to go through that again. But during this time, we see that the people in Israel, God's covenant people, they weren't obeying the commandments of God. They went in, God told them to drive out the inhabitants of the land when he portioned the land up and he gave a different portion to each of the tribes, save Levi, a different story. But the point is, is that he said, drive out the inhabitants, drive out the Canaanites, Those were the people that had habitated in Canaan before. Now, when we look at all the ites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Hittites, and Adasites and Alrites or whatever, but as we look at them, they were nations. They were called Gentile nations, but they were essentially city-states. They were not big countries. It was like a walled city, and there's the Jebusites. The Jebusites specifically inhabited what became... Jerusalem, what was Jerusalem, but they were the Canaanite inhabitants of it up until the time of King David. They were supposed to be driven out, but we're told in Judges chapter 1 that the people didn't drive out the, the, the Jebusites, and they became a snare. So the people weren't obeying during this whole period of the Judges. They weren't obeying uh, the things that God had laid out for them to do. As a result, they hadn't driven out the Canaanites, and as a result of that, uh, increasing apostasy from Yahweh uh, by they were getting involved in this. They were adopting the idol worship of the Canaanite lowercase g gods. They were in trouble. And during these cycles of decline and then repentance and then salvation, the people would God would allow calamity into the land on purpose. And, and it would be a judgment on his people, but it was because he loved them, because he wanted the people to be set apart. He wanted them to be his own people, that he didn't want them polluted by the world, very much how he doesn't want us to be polluted by the world as well. So in these seven cycles of, of uh, God judging the people, they, they, they would prosper, they'd do well, and then they would think, oh, who needs God, <laughs> essentially, and kind of go off on their own and get into this whole false worship thing and all of that and the sin and depravity that goes with it. And God would bring, he would raise up, uh, the people would, he, he'd allow the nations around them, these city states to attack them and to oppress them. And then he would raise up as the people cried out now for God, he would raise up a deliverer, a judge who would be both a military leader and someone who would bring justice to the land uh, culturally. And it's during that time that Ruth takes place. Now, as we look here in Ruth chapter 1, it opens with the statement that there was a famine in the land. Now, I have to believe that that famine is the result of this cycle of disobedience that Israel's faced with. I don't think that it was happenstance. I don't think that it was uh, a coincidence. I think that it was God's hand against the nation, against the people for their idolatry. So during that famine, this guy named Elimelech, he has a family, and Naomi is his wife. He has two sons, Malon and Chilion, (laughs) sickly and pining away. Great names. Um, He decides rather than to submit to the hand of God, which is designed to draw him closer to God, he decides, hey, I got an idea. I got this buddy in Moab or whatever. 
Let's go down there. We can find some food. So he removes himself from the promised land. He actually extricates himself from the promises of God, goes off on his own, doing his own thing. So he gets down there to Moab, and then we're told in the story that Elimelech dies. So there's Naomi. She's got two boys to raise and no husband. That would have put a great hardship on her. She would not have done well under those circumstances. You're talking an agrarian society. If you haven't got a man to go out there and work the field or to do what's needed to put bread on the table, you don't have bread. And so her dependence then shifts. I have to, again, I have to believe that her dependence shifted from Elimelech, her husband, to her two sons, Melon and Chilion. So that they're about 10 years and, and the boys marry Moabite women, uh, Orpah, and Ruth. And, and then, <laughs> 10 years in, both of her sons die. So what this created, as we've talked about in previous studies, is it created an impossible situation that there's no way for them to try to figure out how to eke out a living. Uh, Naomi knows that back in Israel that they have a whole thing set up to where they can glean from the crops. We'll get to that beginning next week. But the point is, is that they are not only grieved and bereft of their husbands, Naomi, bereft of her sons, uh, they're in a tight spot. They're in a real jam. And so Naomi goes to the girls and he, she says, look, come back with me to Israel. Well, they're on their way. And, and I, I, again, you just look at what's going on here it's pretty easy to conclude that Naomi would have gotten been very conflicted about this. Yes, the girls going with her would make her life far more easy than it would have been without anyone, without a husband, without sons. At least her daughter-in-law would be able to care for her in her old age. She would benefit. But she also knows that that's a huge sacrifice for Ruth now, um, she, when they're on their way, she pleads with the, both girls three times. She says, go back to your people, go back to your gods. And then we saw that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, which was a kiss goodbye. Ruth clung to her. So Orpah heads back out of, as, as Naomi is pleading with them, look, life is not going to be easy for you going forward. You need to go back. So now Naomi turns and she pleads directly with Ruth alone. And she says, go with your sister-in-law and go to your people and your gods. That's where we got to Ruth's first words in this beautiful book. Uh, they're poetically eloquent words. She, she gave five statements. We looked at them at length in verses 16 and 17 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I want to briefly revisit them because context is everything. We need to just kind of get caught back up with the flow of what's going on here. It says in verse 16 that uh, Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. What she's saying is stop urging me. Stop trying to persuade me to turn back. Stop it, Naomi. Very polite, but very direct. Stop doing that. I'm not, my mind's made up. Remember, we talked about the fact that Ruth had already converted to, to Judaism. She had already uh, embrace the God of Israel and the people of Israel as her God and her people before she ever opened her mouth. And now we're seeing an outworking of her faith, an outworking of what's going on in her heart in these statements. So she says, stop it, please stop. I, I'm not going to go back. The second thing we saw in, in verse 16, she says, wherever you go, I'll go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And uh, again, we look, this is more than a relocation for Ruth. She's not saying, hey, good idea. I think I'll move with you. What she's doing, she's making a pledge to care for Naomi. She's making a pledge that uh, in their culture and in our culture, it, we need to be mindful of our parents and that uh, it, it's, it's something that it's a, it's a great responsibility and it's something that, that we do with joy. And so Ruth is saying, look, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. In other words, I'm going to be with you. She's taking no account for herself. She's taking no account for her own interests and for her own future. She is focused on wanting to be what she needs to be for her mother-in-law. And that's admirable. 
It's an act of love. The third thing we saw where she says in verse 16, she says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The crux of this entire statement right there saying that, look, and, and two weeks ago, the title of the study was set apart. She's saying, I'm going to be set apart from Moab, from this people that were godless, people that were hostile towards Israel. I'm going to be set apart from them. And I'm going to be set apart to Israel. I'm going to be set apart from Chemosh. Remember, he is the guy, his, his, the name translates destroyer. And, and I'm going to be set apart to Yahweh, the great I am, the redeemer, the one who loves his people. Uh, I can only imagine that through the time that their lives had been connected, uh, both before and after their husbands died, her, that, that Ruth would have been exposed to the God of Israel and that she had come to have a deep respect for him through Naomi. Verse 17, she says, where you die, I will die, and and there I'll be buried. Ruth was stating that her intentions, they went beyond Naomi. She's saying, look, when you die, I'm not not going home. This is home. I'm sticking around. I am truly going to make your people my people and your God my God. And so my intentions are greater than the relationship I have with you, which is significant, but it doesn't stop there because I'm embracing the culture. I'm embracing the people. I'm embracing your God. Uh, She'd chosen uh, Naomi's destination, her dwelling, her people, her God, and her burial place. All of that we looked at a couple weeks ago was looking ahead because faith looks ahead. We can see that she is operating on faith that God has this. She doesn't know a lot about God at this point, but she is trusting that her life would be in his hands. The fifth thing that we see here in verse 17, she says, the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth here swears an oath before Naomi and before God. She says, let me forfeit my life if I don't carry this out. We looked in Hebrews 16 about uh, where... uh, the writer there says that to swear an oath is to end the dispute. And, and that's exactly what Ruth does here. She, she caps the dispute. I mean, after all, what's Naomi going to say? Don't you dare swear to God that you're going to be there with me. I mean, she's not going to say that. She's, she knows that Ruth is absolutely serious about this and that she's making an oath before God to be the things that she is telling Naomi she's going to be in her life at this point. So we read in verse 18 that Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her and she stopped speaking to her. (laughs) I love that. So it's like with Ruth's statement, Naomi couldn't find any grounds to continue her protest, so she zipped it. She's like, all right, I'm done. Uh, But you know, I have to think, again, this is a brief book. It's only four chapters, but there is so much going on. And I want to be careful because we're into interpretation and yet you've got to realize that there's a lot going on here that's behind the scenes or that's unspoken. I have to think that Naomi must have been at least a little bit excited because she was ready at this point. She was ready to walk on by herself. How lonely would that be? How Would she even make it back to Bethlehem? I mean, it's a long walk, 40 miles, mostly uphill. We'll look at that in a minute. But so... As this interchange ends, we see Naomi deciding to, I'm going to hold my peace. You see, Ruth, has she's finally spoken up after several, four times, her mother-in-law trying to get her to turn back. She finally says, look, please stop. I'm going with you, and this is what my life is going to look like. This is what your life is going to look like going forward. I came across a quote by a guy by the name of Charles Ellicott. He was a 19th century conservative scholar, uh, Anglican, I think, and we'll forgive him for that. But um, the guy wrote some great pieces. He he wrote some really good expositions in the Bible, different books, some good expositions in the New Testament. Uh, And he did one on Ruth. And and, uh, this is a quote that he had. I think it's just a beautiful quote. I want to share it with you. He says, what we read here teaches that God not only knows human sorrow, but can transmit through a human heart something of his own power to alleviate and heal. Ruth's love was in this one instance to do what his own was in the fullness of time 
to do universally in Jesus Christ. She was to give rest to one who was weary and heavy laden. This Gentile woman at one step came across the boundaries of life into its glorious liberty when she so loved and made sacrifice. On her altar, there was Christian flame before the time, and her love was that of the daughters of God. Love of such quality as Ruth never fails. It is of unconquerable strength. Like hers, all love will overcome when it is reinforced by the divine. And when it says not only thy people, my people, but also thy God, my God. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 19. Get into the text for this morning. Uh, It says, now the two of them went went until they came to Bethlehem. I'm going to stop there. I want to spend a couple minutes on that. So here are these two women. They're traveling, wounded by life. I mean, both of them. Ruth grieving the loss of her husband. Naomi grieving the loss of both of her sons and her husband. Uh, Here they're going back. And uh, it would have been a difficult trip in a couple of ways. Uh, The first is it would be physically demanding for these two women. As I mentioned, it was 40 miles. Uh, I measured it in Google. (laughs) Um, It was about 40 miles. And it was about a 4,000-foot elevation gain. Now, the plains of Moab on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea is a fairly flat area. And so they would hike north to the northern part of the Dead Sea and probably further north than that till they could find a place to cross the river. And uh, perhaps where Israel crossed some years before when they were brought into the Promised Land under Joshua near Jericho, but then they would have to ascend, go up into the mountains. Have you ever read in the Psalms where it says a Psalm of Ascents? It's because Jerusalem was is at the very top. There were mountains on all around and it's at the top of the mountains. It's on a ridge line, actually. It's at the top of the mountains. And so they're coming from the plains down in the lowlands. I mean, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, on the whole planet. I think it's like 1,400 feet below sea level. I mean, it's down there. And it's near 3,000 feet when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, if that's the way they came in, or if they came in from the north. But however they came in, it was a long walk. It was almost all uphill. The second thing that they would have to be concerned with is it would be dangerous. There were robbers. There were marauders. They were plentiful in that day. That's how they made their living, by attacking people on the roads. And we have to conclude that God had given them divine protection for this trip because it's very unusual for two women alone to be traveling this distance between nations. Uh, They would have to go from Moab to Ammon to the lower parts uh, on the other side of the Jordan River and on up into uh, the hills where Bethlehem was. It would have taken them about seven to ten days roughly uh, and in doing that they would have to pass through Jerusalem because They would hook up over to the north and then drop into Jerusalem and then down to Bethlehem. And so in looking at that, both of these cities, Jerusalem and Bethlehem, had been settled by the tribes of Benjamin for Jerusalem and and Judah for uh, Bethlehem earlier. Uh, And again, the Jebusites hadn't been driven out. It wouldn't be until years later, until King David was raised up, that he would prevail against the Jebusites and that he would take Jerusalem, settle the city of David, give it a new name. And then it was called the city of David, which still exists. You can still go there. It's on the southern part of the old city. And that he would establish that as the capital of Israel. But this is before all that. It would have been a settlement at this time, a small colony. At any rate, it'd be interesting to know what Naomi and Ruth talked about as they made their way back to Bethlehem. I mean, the the Bible doesn't give us any details, but again, you have to, I mean, you have to conclude that there would be interaction going between these two ladies, that Ruth would be asking her mother-in-law, so so tell me, what's life like? What are the culture, what's the culture like? What are the people like? What are the customs? What is your God? Tell me about your God. Tell me what's going on in Israel. And that Naomi uh, and again, you've got to realize these women had been connected for a while. I mean, their sons, her sons had been married to these women and, and that 
with Orpah and Ruth, and now Ruth would have been in the family, we don't know how long, but for some time, and you have to think that they had conversations, that there was something about Naomi's God that had really attracted Ruth. And so now she's asking the questions. I don't see this as being a silent trip. It's my only point, is that there was a lot going on. I also have to wonder if Naomi had warned Ruth uh, that she might not be welcomed by everyone. Remember, in Deuteronomy 23, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, and then I think three, we looked at it a couple of times. <laughs> Moab was not on God's favored nation list. So let's just put it that way. I mean, he had very strict things in his law. He said, they are not to have any part with you to the 10th generation, even forever. And he says forever twice. So the Moabites were not looked on well by devout Jews. They just weren't. And so there had to be concern with Naomi, knowing that that was the case, knowing that she's bringing this Moabite woman back whom she loves and is a lovely woman. And yet the racial tensions could have easily been there between these two peoples. Verse 19, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And and the women said, is this Naomi? So Naomi and Ruth, they don't walk into Bethlehem unnoticed. It's not without stirring the people up. Now, again, this is a small village and everyone in the village would have known everybody else. I mean, that's how small communities are. I've lived in them. The community we lived in in far northern California, the nearest city was, I think, 350 people, and we were like four miles out of town. But everybody knew everybody else's business, and everybody had an opinion about it. And, you know, it's just, oh my, my, the gossip mill was crazy. But the point is, is that this is a tight-knit community, and they come into town, and the whole community is buzzing about it. And, and they would know, they're, sure, there'd be people that moved in and out and all of that, like there's in any community, but by and large, they would remember the person that had left 10 years ago. Notice that it says all the city was excited. The word excited literally means they were moved, they were stirred, there was a commotion. And so uh, as they're excited about this, their entrance to the city would have been the topic of conversation. And also, you know, the, the people of Bethlehem, they, they must have been puzzled about a couple of things. The first was Naomi's appearance. They say, is this Naomi? <laughs> I, got re- I remembered uh, oh, a couple months ago uh, on the churches, we have a thing on our website. If you want to email, you can email the church and, and it comes to me and, and <laughs> I interact with it. Um, and, and we got this one piece of email and it said, hi, John. I don't know if you remember me, but I'm Chris White. And I was the assistant pastor at the church where you got saved in, like in the early 80s. <laughs> and I wrote him back and I said, of course I remember you, Chris. I mean, yeah, that's awesome that you would write. And I, re- I was in your home fellowship in 1983. <laughs> it's just, it was crazy. So we arranged to get together for lunch. We had a brief interaction yesterday. I wrote him and said, I was thinking about you. I'm getting my study ready. He's a pastor over at... Um, the Foursquare, executive pastor at Canby uh, Foursquare Church now. Anyway, we went, to, we went to lunch together, and I sat down at the table, and I think I teased him. I think I said, wow, you know, you got kind of old, Chris. And, <laughs> but I, I just, I was picturing him because I look way different. So does, I mean, he looks pretty much the same, really. <laughs> but, you know, the last time he saw me, and this big mop of thick brown hair, a full black beard that was usually filled out pretty well. I usually wore a flannel shirt, sometimes suspenders. I looked like a lumberjack. And, and here, you know, this guy walks in, and, and I walk in, and it's like, wow, it has been 35 years, hasn't it? <laughs> so anyway, I was thinking about that. I was looking at this. But I, but I think that it was more than just amazement of what 10 years could do to Naomi's appearance. She'd lost her entire family. You've got to remember, her life is fractured. She'd been cared for by her husband and then by her sons, and now she's in poverty. She's in distress. She has nothing. So it was more than just the long trip. The scars of life and a land she had no business being in were prominent, at least in her countenance, probably in her whole physical appearance. 
instead of the pleasant and sunny disposition that everybody loved in Bethlehem when she had left. She looked worn, stressed out. She was definitely depressed. And you could tell. Essentially, the stresses of life had done a number on Naomi's outward appearance. Have you ever seen that in somebody? I have. Where you see that perhaps a severe trial or grief or some huge life-changing event has just worn on someone. It happens. And Naomi was showing the, the marks of the severity of her life in this situation. It can take a toll. At least, as I mentioned, her countenance, if not her general physical appearance, had changed from the Naomi that they had known 10 years before. The second thing that the people would be puzzled about as she came into Jerusalem or into Bethlehem was that it, conspicuous in their absence, they'd be wondering, well, well where's Elimelech? Where are the boys? And, and who's this woman that's with Naomi? Who? I'm not understanding this. Uh, and, and why is this woman with Naomi? And, and so there would be lots of questions in this buzz, in this commotion in the city as, as they came in. Verse 20 But she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, if you remember in the book of Exodus, right after God takes Israel through the Red Sea, they go out and they're camped out on the plains there and they go three days without water and they're looking for water. They finally come across a body of water, but they soon discover that the water is bitter. It's called the waters at Mara. It's the same word that's used here. And, and that God instructs Moses, he throws a tree into the water. It's great type stuff going on there as far as the gospel and Jesus and being the branch that's thrown in that makes the water sweet. And the water went from bitter to sweet. Well, she's saying, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. And the people would connect with that as she's saying that. God has dealt very bitterly with me. And so uh, she had heard the question, is this Naomi? And and perhaps it was in whispered tones. We don't know. But in a bitter tone, she said, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She says, the Almighty's dealt bitterly with me. The Almighty here is El Shaddai. And it's God Almighty is who she is quoting here. She's not saying Yahweh. She's using another name for God, same God, but another name for him. And it's the God of power. She knows God's power and she sees God's hand in her calamity. That's why she's using this word. The question her words raise is, is how did she say these things? Did she say them bitterly? Uh, Some suggest that she did. Some say that she was bitter towards God. I don't believe that. I think that the evidence would suggest otherwise, because again, think about the attractiveness of her faith, her relationship with God that Ruth had seen. And so, I mean, if Naomi was bitter, there wouldn't have been anything to attract Ruth. So she wasn't, but the point is here, she's not a phony. There's no difference uh, between, I mean, there is a difference between her experiencing and expressing bitterness and grief and being bitter. We can express bitterness without being bitter. And I, I think that's where she's at. So she wasn't going to go home and, and pretend that everything was fine. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. My life's a train wreck, but I'm fine. No, she wasn't going to do that. I wish more people wouldn't. <laughs> she, I mean, there's a place for it. She's going to be honest. She's going to say, you know, here I am. And my life is broken. It's been bitter. I think there's a point in this that I want to bring out. And it's, it's this. Folks, there is nothing unspiritual about saying, my life isn't working right now. It's not an unspiritual thing. Sometimes I hear people when they're talking to me, they'll, they'll, they'll state something and they'll say, well, you know, but I really know. Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, just relax. We're human. We get broken sometimes more than others. And we go through things and sometimes they hurt. And there's nothing unspiritual about stating the truth. Right now it hurts. I need help. Or right now it hurts. And I'm just putting my heart out there. Verse 21, she says, she says, I went out full 
and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Notice she says home. I think that's significant. Home wasn't Moab. She knew where home was the whole time she was gone. She knew where home was the moment she left Bethlehem 10 years before. She says, the Lord's brought me home again. I'm empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She says, I went out full. I came back empty. She knew that the tragedy that came into her life was not because of fate or chance or just misfortune. She believed that the tragedies in her life were God's affliction. And that wasn't, a, it wasn't something that he was doing to punish her. It wasn't something he was doing to, to, to because he's not, that's not who he is. Yeah, he'd allowed them, but she couldn't see the end of his plan. Folks, this is a hard thing to deal with. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to deal with if you've experienced a significant loss in your life. And there comes a place where faith has to come in because I've seen people go both ways on that. I've seen them get angry and shake their fist at God. But I've also seen what God desires in it for them to draw near and to receive his comfort. We live on a fallen world and part of that is loss. So Naomi's empty with regards to her family. She went out with a husband, two sons. She came back a widow, no kids. I can't imagine the private times in her heart or she would hold that up to the Lord. That's beyond significant. That's huge. I'm not surprised that she goes, she comes back into town. She says, I left full. I came back empty. She was also empty with regard to her fortune. We can assume that part of going out full was that uh, she was empty uh, now, but, and when she left, that she was amply provided by, by Elimelech. Remember, when we looked at their move, they didn't go to be foreigners in Moab. They went to be sojourners. There was a difference in class there. If you're a foreigner, you're like visiting, (laughs) okay? You're on a visa. If you're a sojourner, you've applied for citizenship. You're going to stay. This was a permanent move for them. So Elimelech would have taken all that he had and transferred it to Moab, whether it was herds and flocks or whatever his assets were. So she went out full in that sense. And now she's in poverty. She has nothing. So she, went, she was empty with regard to her family. She was empty with regard to any fortune. Um, she was also empty with regard to her faith. I believe that she was at a low place. Yeah, she had enough faith to know she needed to get home. She needed to get back where she belonged. And that's a good thing. She also knew, though, that they had left because of the famine. And I have to think that she had remorse and regret about that because she knew where she belonged. And coming back empty, we see that Naomi had been reduced to poverty, as I mentioned. And so I think it's evident that her faith is at a low point here. She's overreaching, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. She's overreaching in her inter- interpretation of the events in her life. I, I think that there's some error there, and, and we'll dissect it here in a few minutes. But I don't believe she's calling God out. She would never have left Moab if she was. She wouldn't have attracted Ruth if she was. I think that if someone had asked her, why have you come back, that she would have said something like, because I need to be right with the God of Israel. I need to be back among his people, my people again. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So, and that's significant. Providentially, God allowed them to come back right at the harvest, right when he knew that he was going to align things. He's working so far ahead of these people and we have the benefit of seeing it in their lives, not so much at time in ours. We'll talk about that. But all the good that happens from this point forward in the chapters ahead, it begins here. Uh, With Naomi's, I believe that she has a a repentant heart. I believe she has a penitent heart. She's back. 
And she's being transparent about her life and her recent history. As we look at this, though, I want to revisit verse 21 and her statement. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Remember, this is in the days of the judges. God specifically brought calamity on the people in order to reel them in. That was his design. We've looked at that. The cycle of sin and correction and repentance we see there, I believe, is also in place in Naomi's life because Naomi left Israel. You could take the girl out of Israel, but you weren't taking the Israel out of the girl. She still belonged to him. She was still one of his covenant children. She still was God's family. And that God was doing that on a national level that affected individuals back in Israel didn't stop God from doing that individually with her, even though she had stepped out of the country. And so when she says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me back home again empty, I beg to differ. Yeah, we're told to walk by faith and not by sight. If you look at this Physically, what was going on there? Yeah, famine in the land. Yeah. And yet, that would be empty, (laughs) not full. What she's saying here is that I, I went out full. No, she went out empty because she was in rebellion towards God. She was stepping out of God's promises. She went out empty. And if she had the ability to look ahead in the circumstances in her life, she would see absolutely that God had allowed these things in her life to draw her back into that place of being in God's, in the sphere of blessing in the promised land, back to the promises of God, that she would see that her life, she's coming back full, but she can't see that yet. Let me explain. You guys remember the story of the rich young ruler in the New Testament? Jesus is there. He's teaching the people. And the rich young ruler comes up and he says, uh, tell me, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I'm just going to paraphrase from memory. And and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except God alone. This is kind of what I tag on to the end of that. And he says, well, I've kept all of the commandments from my youth up. I've done it all, man. I have gold stars by every one of my chores. I've done everything right. I mean, I've got it all. And Jesus says, there's one thing that you lack. He says, he knew he had great wealth. He says, go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me and you'll have great reward in heaven. He's saying, look, You're coming to me stating that you're full and you're empty. Go sell everything that you have and come back and be full. It's the same thing. It's the same principle. It's a principle that you see seeping out through the pages of God's word in a number of places. I don't have time to go to more this morning. But what he's saying is, look, you don't walk by sight. It's not about how much stuff you have. It's not about how many rules you kept. If you're basing it on how many rules you kept, there's always going to be one more. He's saying it's not about that. It's not about the seen world. It's about the unseen. It's about your heart. And this man's heart was wrong. He's saying, you come to me full. Go get rid of all of that. Get emptied. And then come back and I'll show you what fullness really looks like. That's what's happening in Naomi's life here. We have the advantage of seeing beyond the moment in Naomi's life. We, we know the story. If you've been a Christian for very long at all, you know the book of Ruth. It's just a great story. Naomi didn't. We don't have the same advantage in our own lives. I'll tell you what, folks, things are coming unraveled out there. Things are getting crazier out there. And every morning when I get up and think, man, it's never been so crazy, it gets crazier. And yet, we walk by faith not by sight. So how do we find balance in this upside down world? That's the point of the message this morning. That's why I think it's just, we see some great lessons from the book of Ruth here. The first is to receive God's love through embracing him in the midst of life's trials. We're all going to go, you know, in the world, you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. A lot of trouble out there right now. A lot of trouble with this crazy disease. There's a lot of trouble 
in our government. There's a lot of trouble in our culture everywhere you look. And there aren't easy answers to any of it. Naomi had taken a hike from God, but now she's back. Brothers and sisters, embrace Jesus in deepening ways, not just in acknowledging him or in a shallow way, but but understand what the word Lord means. It means you surrender control of your life to him. Open to him the deepest parts of you. Uh, Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3, I love this passage. Um, In verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Turn, change your mind. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. When he talks about opening the door, what he's talking about is he will not violate my will. He's saying, open to me. Open to me in the depths of your heart. Open to me and invite me in because he says, and I will dine with him and him with me. In that culture, they believe that partaking of the same food was to be sharing the essence of one another, that they became one with one another. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to be one with you. I want to have you open that door. I pursue fellowship. I pursue intimacy with you. You've got to open the door. He wants people that want him. The second thing we see here on how do we live in this, how do we find comfort? How do we find balance in this upside down world is acknowledge the difficulty, acknowledge the pain. Naomi made no bones about her situation and her pain. Acknowledge it before God. I, I was looking here, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about the Psalms. Uh, and, and 42 of the Psalms are called Psalms of Lament. We've talked about them before. I, whether you're here or not, it's fine. I'm going to go through it again. But the point is that there's a pattern in these Psalms of Lament, and it's a wonderful pattern. It's a great pattern for prayer. And I'm not telling you, you know, figure this out and then can your prayers. I'm not saying that at all. But this pattern is beautiful and it's, and it's instructive for us in, in bringing our lament to God, acknowledging the difficulty or the pain in our lives before God. And the first is the cry of the heart, the first of five here. It identifies the Lord as the person to whom our cry is addressed. Very often you see in the Psalms, unto you, O Lord, will I, will I pour out my heart. Unto you, Lord, I cry out in the night. Unto you, Lord, my bed is soaked with tears. And he, he, he goes, there's a real limit, there's a real cry in the Psalms. The second thing we see here is the complaint or the lament itself, describing the problem and asking the Lord for help, for him to intervene. The third thing in this pattern in the Psalms that we see is a confession of trust. And it's where David uh, or uh, any or the other psalmists that were writing these psalms, where they verbalize trust in the Lord. That's important, folks. It's important that we that we state that we trust Him. I know sometimes we have troubles with that. I do, but to trust God in the midst of the calamity, in the midst of the pain, and the next is a prayer for deliverance, requesting deliverance or God's intervention in the problem or the trial. Finally, these psalms, the, 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 the psalms of lament, they end with the offering of praise. It's, it's offering praise and thanksgiving to God for his many blessings, for his being our strength, for his being our fortress, for his being our help in time of need. The point is, pour your heart out to the Lord. Give him your pain. The second thing is, as we look at this, is, is acknowledging the difficulty or the pain don't bottle it up. Acknowledge it before men, women. Be careful on this. It's, it's healthy to have a trusted circle of people in your life that you share your heart with. Not everyone will treat it well. I, I wish I could say otherwise, but that's just real. But as mentioned, there's a difference between expressing bitterness and being bitter. Express the, the, the hurts, express the pain, express the sorrow. A trusted friend is vital, difficult, and painful times. Naomi was paying, pouring out her pain to the others. 
don't be like, have you ever seen, like, watching a nature program where if an animal is wounded, the tendency is that they will go off by themselves and it makes them vulnerable, it makes them prey. Uh, don't do that with pain. We need one another. Uh, I remember after my daughter went to heaven, I was part of a bereavement group for a short time and, and something that was mentioned by a couple of people was that a person had, had died in their family and that their father or their relative, whoever, would say, we are never going to utter their name again because he didn't know what to do with the pain. He didn't know how to handle the anguish, the grief. And, 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 but it, it, what I was also told, and I never experienced this firsthand, but I, I trust the people that were sharing, was that that posture had devastating effects on the family had devastating effects on the person bearing the pain. We bear one another's burdens, folks. And when we're in burdensome times, when we go through trials in our lives, trusted friends are vital. The third thing that we look at here, how do we live in this crazy upside-down world, is accept your circumstances. Now, I'm not a shrink, I'm not a psychologist, and and. I, I don't understand a lot of that, but I, I do understand this, that acceptance is the opposite of pain. Very often when we're in pain over things, it's because we're wrestling with accepting the reality of whatever that thing is. And it may not change it, but acceptance is important. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, um, he had gone through more than most of us will go through in our lifetimes. And there he is. I, I, I just I marvel at the prison epistles to begin with, the four letters that he wrote. I mean, Paul's there. He's chained to, as we looked at in Ephesians not long ago, he's chained to a Roman guard. And, and he's there. He's not saying, get me out of here. He's saying, I accept what God has for me. Difficult as it is, and sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's more difficult than being chained to a guard. It hurts sometimes. I don't want to minimize that. But he says this in Philippians there. Philippians is the most joyful letter, by the way, in the entire New Testament. And Paul's in jail when he writes. I just think that's so cool. Is that a good word? Yeah, it's cool. He says in verse 12 of Philippians 4, he says, I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did that make it fun? Not necessarily. He would eventually be beheaded. But was he accepting where he was at? Yeah, he was. And he was secure in that. Good lesson in that for us. The fourth thing we looked at here uh, that, uh, in making sense of the craziness that we're faced with is understand your brokenness. Folks, brokenness is part of the life that we have in Christ. He allows brokenness. I don't, I know things that I've faced and I know things that some of you have faced and they're not pleasant. Sometimes it's awful Sometimes it's awful on par with what Naomi experienced in saying goodbye to her husband and then saying goodbye to her only two children. That's not a thing that you take lightly, and nor should we. But God uses brokenness. In Naomi's life, he used it to draw her back into the fold. And it wasn't that he said, well, gee, I think I'll kill her husband and kill her kids so I get her attention. But he allowed that to happen, and that had the effect of getting her attention. Do you understand the difference? In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, Hosea writes, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. This is exactly what's going on in Naomi's life. God is having his way with her. In Romans 8, 28, that famous verse, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and who are called according to his purpose. And and so often it breaks my heart that people don't go on to verse 29, which tells us what that purpose is. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
He's doing a work. He's forming Christ in us. And sometimes, as James says, that's a painful process. Sometimes that's a heart-wrenching process. They don't want to minimize it. It hurts. And there's nothing unspiritual about saying, you know what, it hurts, just like Naomi did. But God is working ahead of us. We have the advantage of seeing what's happening in her life because when we turn the page, things are going to just get really different for her and blessed. We don't have the advantage of turning the page in our lives, and yet that's where trust for the Lord comes into play. We've got to be in a place of trusting him. Trusting him for this crazy disease, trusting him for the craziness in politics, trusting him for this unhinged culture that we live in. There's a lot of stuff going on out there that can overwhelm, that can infect it, our, our thinking. And it, it can impact us in ways that, that cause us to, to even draw back from our understanding of this. It gets hard out there. I, I get upset. I mean, <laughs> I feel like that Lebanese guy I saw on television threw a shoe at the television. And sometimes I feel that way. I don't do it, mainly because I spend a lot of money for that television. But, um, but the point is, understand your brokenness. It's not always punitive. Understand that. But it's always for our good. God will use it. There's significant points in my life where God has allowed me to get broken, where he has allowed hardship and calamity to come. Those are some of the times where I've experienced, and I know this sounds, you have to look at this through spiritual eyes, and I'm not minimizing. I swear I'm not. I promise I'm not. But I remember talking one time about when my daughter went to heaven that that was such a difficult time. And yet that was where God did some of the most profound work in my heart through the pain. Understand that he's working in our brokenness. That's the point. The fifth thing here, and, and let's lift it up a little bit. I know that's pretty serious stuff, but it's, we're talking about walking with the Lord, guys. And this is part of it. The fifth thing we look at here is pursue joy. There's a reason that God's word proclaims that the joy of the Lord is my strength. When things are terrible, the answer isn't going further from God. Which, and, and as I mentioned, it, it, it just hurts when I see people doing that. I did bereavement uh, counseling for a while when we were in California. And, and I remember one guy just pounding his fist on the table and leaving because he could not wrap his his head, his heart around his pain to the point where he was angry and just beside himself. Understood it. It was hard. There wouldn't be any joy in his life. Something that I think is really important as we look at this. Do you want more joy in your life? I do. Give yourself away. Give yourself away. Pour yourself out on behalf of someone else or someone's else. Give him your heart. Give him that part of you that says, you know, Lord, I understand that your word says it's more blessed to give than receive. I'll tell you what, I have never come away from any aspect of serving God or serving others and felt like I got the raw end of the deal. As we give ourselves away, as we invest ourselves in others, there is something that happens inside of us that's remarkable. And it's joy. So if you want to experience joy in a deeper measure in your life, figure out a way to serve others. Maybe in the church, maybe outside of the church. I don't know. There's lots of stuff out there. The ultimate act of love and serving others we have is a great example from our hero, Jesus himself. Hebrews 12 uh, tells us, 12 two says, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And when he had finished making atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was the joy before Jesus in that? You, me, we're the joy that was set before him. Our redemption, that's what it's talking about there. He gave himself away. Ultimately, yeah, I'm not saying that we all need to go, that's crazy. We're not going to do it to that extent. But in giving ourselves away, there's joy. The point is we can truly live well within lousy circumstances because the reason that the, the, the joy of the Lord is our strength is that happiness is communicated to me by what? By my circumstances. 
And so if I have good circumstances, I'm a happy guy. If I have lousy circumstances, guess what? I'm going to be unhappy. But joy is entirely different. Joy is that deep abiding sense that it's going to be okay. It's that deep abiding sense of God has this. God has this. It's all in his plan. It's all in his hand. I don't have to stress about it. I don't have to worry about it. I can have joy because joy is not communicated by circumstances. Joy is communicated to my soul by the Holy Spirit himself. And it's far deeper. It's not dependent on circumstances. That's why we can go through really lousy circumstances, but have joy. And it's a birthright, folks. Avail yourself of it. I love dealing with joyful people. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's hard. I understand that. And yet, we really need to understand that the joy of the Lord is our strength when we're going through difficult, crazy, upside-down times. And we're trying to find balance. The last thing, it's Thanksgiving. Be thankful. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, again, this is another prison epistle. He, again, chained to a guard in jail. And, and he's saying these things, but he, you know what? He owns it. This is part of who he is as a Christian. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body and be thankful. And then he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the word of God have its way in your life. We come here, we enjoy being together. We come here, we enjoy seeing and worshiping the Lord. We also come here to spend time in his word. And, and what he says here is let that have the effect that God wants it to have. Let it dwell in your heart richly in all wisdom. Take these things to heart. It's God's word. I was telling somebody after first service, I didn't write the paper. I'm just a delivery boy and I'm throwing it in your yard. What you do with it is what you do with it. But understand, this is God's word. He says, let uh, the word of God, Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace or thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. Point is, folks, we have much to be thankful for. I know that calamity strikes. It's stricken in my life and is likely stricken in yours at one time or another. And like what I heard one guy say, he said, you know, if you're not going through a trial, you're either coming out of one or you're about to go in one. But the point is, is that we go through difficult times in life. We go through difficult seasons. We're in the midst of this crazy pandemic, this crazy culture, this crazy political thing that's going on. There's all kinds of things going on. And we can either get knocked off our pins by that or we can have a settled peace because our hearts, our lives are hidden in the beloved. If you don't know Christ, perhaps you're watching online and and you haven't ever experienced this relationship that we're talking about. Perhaps you've lived your life in the world until now now, and and, and you're connecting with Moab (laughs) being outside of God's promises. That's what it's representative of in the book of Ruth. You can fix that with a simple prayer. And it's just understanding that Jesus died for your sins and that he went to the cross for you individually. And so you can come into his kingdom by simply asking him to forgive you for your sins, to cleanse you, and to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And I guarantee you that if you do that and you mean it, he will. This can be the first day of a new life, a life that will give you understanding, a life that will offer you the ability to make sense of the things that are going on outside, also the things that are going on inside as we grapple with trials and with loss and with things that are happening individually in our lives. That's the God that we love and serve. If you're searching for answers, come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, just this brief look in in the book of Ruth, but but the broader look at at what do we do in in difficult times? How do we respond to the world around us when it's spinning out of control? How do we make sense of of, of the the people that are so angry and coming against others and coming against you? How do we make sense of this disease and all of the people that we see that are affected by it? 
either politically or, or literally physically because it's a real thing. And so, Lord, with all of that, all of the chatter, all of the stuff, all of the hardship, all the brokenness, Lord, we give it to you. Lord, you're faithful. Your promises are yes and amen. Your promises are to us. And so, Lord, let us be people who take you for your word and that our lives are transformed as a result. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen.